And welcome back, faithful listeners, uh, to Around with Stephen Cole. We are here pre-recorded from my fabulous partner's uh, Mid-City Bar, 12-mile limit. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? Hey, everybody. This is T. Cole Newton. As Steve said, we're coming at you pre-recorded from 12-mile limit here in Mid-City, New Orleans. We've got a great guest with us today. It's uh, my longtime friend, uh, New Orleans bar luminary, Ms. Lucinda Weed. Why don't you introduce yourself, Lucy? Hi, everybody. I'm Ms. Lucinda Weed, or Lucy, if you know me in person. <laughs> Do they have to meet you in person before they can start calling you Lucy? No, there's no rules behind that. No rules. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I think we all go back pretty far for the most part. Uh, I, this is really interesting. I, I love kind of trying to connect the threads with everything. Uh, so I, I think it's really interesting to go back and kind of trace like a lot of people who have been in this industry and known each other for a while and say, this is how we met. You know, This is how we've known each other and everything like that. So okay. how how do we know think, Lucy? Where do we meet so originally? I moved to New Orleans in March of 2010 and started working pretty much right out the gate with Glazer's special events. And I th- I'm sure we all did that in some capacity around that time. Mm. Right on. Where was the first bar you worked at? Um, well, if you want to get really technical, Pirate's Alley. <laughs> awesome. Ooh. Okay. That Well, first bar I worked at in New Orleans is where I'm going at here. What kind of what, what was your uh, professional history like before you moved to New Orleans? And where did you move down from? Um, I moved here from Portland, Maine. Um, originally, I'm from New Hampshire, and then just went a little further north before coming severely south. <laughs> um, I was bartending starting at the age of 18, mm-hmm. which I'm Is that legal sure. there? It's legal if you don't exchange money. So I could serve the drinks... And someone else would have to do the money exchange. Okay. I'm not sure how cool. the law has evolved, or I really I don't think that 18 year olds should be allowed to serve alcohol. Um, but I did. It is legal in New Orleans for 18 year olds to serve alcohol. Mm-hmm. So weird. Um, <laughs> so I started at a, a little place called Blue, sort of a small, intimate music venue, just doing beer and wine, um, and that sort of broke the seal of bartending. Then moved down the street to another music venue. Um, called One Longfellow Square that was a more theater capacity, uh, like two-step cocktails, like Jack and Cokes and gin and tonics, wine out of boxes, nice micro-brews, but really just wonderful, beautiful music. Um, And from there, I caught wind of this whole cocktail movement. Someone gave me a Dale DeGroff book, and I was like, ah, there's like a real craft to this. I can continue (laughs) on in this industry and maybe grow and learn. Uh, and at that point, I'd been in Portland for about three years and decided I was going to move to New York or New Orleans, visited both. I have a longer relationship with New Orleans coming here as a kid on vacation, but um, sort of refell in love with the city very immediately and three months later moved down. Cool. Awesome. I was about to ask, uh, you know, if you're falling into the cocktail movement, apparently, uh, especially in that like 10 years ago kind of spectrum, um, why not New York, I guess, because like, you know, that was the time that really all the bars were opening up and all the opportunities were popping up. There's such demand for young people to come in and start contributing to the cocktail scene there. So that's really interesting to hear. What was your experiences coming down to New Orleans before that then? My parents had a timeshare here when I was a kid. So okay. every summer, I think from the age of like nine to 17, we would come down and do every tour imaginable. So ghost tours, swamp tours, garden district tours, um, really tour-related things. Um, (laughs) The dining world wasn't really in our budget, so we would stay at our timeshare. We'd go to the grocery on the corner, which is that one on uh, 
St. Charles and Jackson. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Because we were at the Avenue Plaza Hotel. Right. We'd get PB&J makings, and like our fancy dinners was like going to Popeye's. Awesome. Um, so <laughs> that's really cool. The Popeye's whole, is awesome still. I, yeah. Yeah. I'm, that's a classic. Even if sure. Burger King owns them. But, uh, <laughs> still good. My awakening to the scene here and my experience now versus then is very different because I'm very much active in eating as much beautiful food as I possibly can. It's a lot easier to do nowadays, too, I think. I can't remember the last time. It, the last time I had a PB&J was at uh, the Pavillon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So for anybody who doesn't know, Le Pavillon is a hotel that's uh, near, pretty much near the Superdome. It's right yeah, in the it's middle on of the business district. But uh, at 10 o'clock, they put out like this or 10 or 11 o'clock late night for their guests, they put out this peanut butter and jelly bar with chocolate milk. And uh, I just remember, like, uh, I used to work down the street from there, and I would have uh, some of my regulars bring me peanut butter and jelly and chocolate milk cartons to drink. That's it's really sweet. the nicest hotel amenity. <laughs> also, the door for their pool, uh, rooftop pool, has been broken for, like, ever, so you can get up Don't there. Don't tell that to people. Ah, we only have 70 listeners. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um... Coming here as a kid, what was it like for what? It, I always kind of like struggle with that as well. Like you know, like part of me is like you know when you see families walking down Bourbon Street and they've got like a stroller, you're like, what the hell are you doing here? Is this really a like a family town, a family vacation kind of thing? What was that dynamic like when you came down with your parents? Was there a point in time when your parents were like, okay, Lucy, time to go to bed, and then they'd go out, or was it just like all spent time like daytime New Orleans? My parents are really, really cool, and yeah, yes, they <laughs> are. By the way. Um, they're intention of coming to new orleans wasn't like a okay you go to bed so we can party it was mm-hmm. really like this is a really interesting culture and we're gonna try to expose you to it without sort of breaking the seal of childhood mm-hmm. so i can remember there was one time i came down just with my mom and we got moved from avenue plaza to some really dinky little hotel in the quarter and it was <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning and we were walking around the quarter and they or maybe it was earlier than that because they had just hosed everything down. I remember the smell, mm-hmm. that pine salt. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and there was a guy with a beer. And I was like, Mom, this is really early for a guy to be walking around with a beer. And she's like, yeah, Lucy, that's something called hair of the dog. <laughs> I was like, I just kind of let it go. I was like, huh, like I'm going to ponder this for a while. I'm still pondering it. <laughs> like, as a person that's been hung over in the morning, I can't fathom <laughs> looking at a beer. So it's... When I used to be hungover in the morning more often than I am now, which is never anymore, really. Um, but yeah, yeah, morning beer is really good to take the edge off. Uh, yeah, if you're I can. if you're living that life. My hair of the dog is going to be coconut water. It took me a while to get on the coconut water train, but oh, yeah. at this point, it's that's, just that's not what hair of the dog means. That's I know just it's a not. hydration. Coconuts are hairy and I potassium. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it has to do with dogs, but it's uh, a stretch, Steve. That's a stretch. <laughs> Big stretch. Um, right. But no, I, I do think that there is a lot. I mean, people. I mean, in the. If you're primarily staying on St. Charles, the, the, you're getting a lot of that garden district, that uptown architecture. There's, there's a lot to do in New Orleans for families. The, the zoo and mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of the music on the streets, a lot of the, the art is, is, is very family-friendly. And so people think of New Orleans as this den of iniquity, and it is if that's what you want it to be, but mm-hmm. it's also only if that's what you want it to be. Because it's really an opt-in situation. You don't right. have to take your kids down Bourbon Street. Yeah. Right. I mean, much like today, we would 
take Royal Street, not Bourbon Street. And mm. I still find myself avoiding Bourbon Street at all costs and every opportunity window shopping on Royal. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, let's circle back a little bit. So that's kind of what, <laughs> what, what your connection is to New Orleans. We talked a little bit about your first job working in New Orleans as well. Let's, let's look at Lucy first couple of years in New Orleans. What were your experiences moving down here? Um, moving down here was a wild transition. Mm-hmm. I definitely spent the first few months just drinking to, at all hours of the night because I could, and that was sort of how I acclimated to the city. Um, I went through a few jobs to kind of get my footing. So I started at Pirate's Alley. That lasted all of six shifts. <laughs> um, the uniform is dressed like a pirate, which Arg. <laughs> for anyone who knows me, that isn't necessarily my game. Um, went from there to August, where their bar program was kind of lacking. I haven't been there in ages. I'm not sure. They have there. a much more developed cocktail program than they did when I first went there. It was yeah. probably around the same time. You they, uh, they brought me on with the intention, like they saw how hungry I was and how eager to like execute cool cocktails. And they were like, great, you can have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday lunch shifts and you'll get all the juicing done for the week. <laughs> Which doesn't really make sense to have juice on Wednesday the following Sunday. It's not <laughs> fresh anymore. Um, from there, I went to Loa, just down the street, um, where I was really kind of able to flex and shine and grow. That was under um, the mentorship of Rhiannon and Star. I think that's what that's that was our professional connection because you came on at Loa. If that was still in 2010, that was just after you, right? It was right after I left. I worked at Loa for a year, probably 2008 and 2009, and so I. I sort of straddled the end of Ricky Gomez's tenure as manager there and the beginning of Star Hodgson's management tenure there. And you came on right after I left to go over to Coquette full-time because I was doing both when Coquette full o- first opened. But yeah, I, I really I really liked working over there with the team that, that I left behind. And... And, but and I'm, but I think that was because I I would still go over there and hang out. I would still I still liked being in that space. It's a really sort of lush, opulent bit of a downtown oasis kind of vibe. Even now, um, and uh, but so I think that's probably when we started to become in each other's orbit a little bit. Yeah, Steve, yeah. what was yours? When, when what's your first Lucy experience? Was we, my we, first haven't, Lucy we haven't we, we talked about that, but we didn't we didn't actually settle on it. Uh, well, uh, so. I think I've hidden, I mean, on this podcast, I've definitely brought it up a couple times, but over the years, I've made a lot of extended efforts to try and be as sociable as possible. I really realized to uh, be successful in this industry, you know, going out and meeting people and like, you know, being not myself for the most part was really important. Um, But, you know, finding those introverted like uh, instincts was a little bit hard with some things. Uh, the Museum of the American Cocktail, I'm sure, is where we probably met. Oh yeah, because uh, that was just where everybody met back in the day. I mean, Those like you know, were the days. I, I I cannot I cannot express more how much it is missed in this community. Uh, those. Uh, what what days, Louise? Were they Sundays or Mondays? Mondays? They're Mondays that Motac we had. Mondays. Motac Mondays. Um, so the Museum American Cocktail used to be in the Riverwalk Mall, um, which is kind of an outlet mall-ish now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the back of what was called the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, which they've reopened a new Southern Food and Beverage Museum over on Aretha Castle Haley in Central City. Um, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, there was a big separation between the Cocktail Museum and SoFab beforehand. Now it's kind of all integrated together. Um, which is which is fine. I mean, the space is fine, and it's uh, it's an up and coming area of town. Hopefully, that's what they're really trying to achieve over there. Uh, but being downtown, it was really 
like central to everybody. So it was a good place for everybody to meet at um, from all the different neighborhoods around town. And they did this thing where they would pay for uh, specialists in the industry to come down and do lectures that were open to everybody for like 10 or $15. But if you're in the industry, you were allowed to get in free if you volunteered to batch cocktails or to set up and break down everything. Um, and, you know, it was really great access at that time. Like, you know, like Dave Wandrich would come in and talk. Jeff Berry would come in and talk. Uh, you know, Jonathan Pogash. Like, all these guys who had written books that we had read and had, uh, you know, details of the cocktail seminars that, like, maybe we weren't able to go to at some point. So it was like they would put on these seminars that are really great, and then you would get to talk to them and meet them. And, you know, that access is really missing in the industry nowadays. But more than anything else, I think what's missing here in New Orleans is just having – uh, a place that we would all meet on a monthly basis. Uh, so I I skipped like probably about half a year of those. And then finally I was like, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet some people. And like, it was pretty intimidating for the most part. Um, but I don't think I could have fallen into a better group of people, people like you, Lucy and Christine Janine and Rhiannon and Enlil and uh, just Kim Nick, was there Nick all the Kim, time. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh Travis my God, Kim. Sanders. Yeah. Think Travis Sanders and Ian Julian were the two people who were just like, Steve, stop being an idiot, come in here, and like, you know, like, like this is perfectly fine, we should be hanging out It together. was almost like a New Orleans local cap program, mm-hmm. like, mm. every month. Yeah. Like, we would put that production on with the McMillans as mm-hmm. a team, Yeah, and we would all just sort of fall into line, like, this needs to get done, mm-hmm. here are your hands, like, yeah. we just all had hands and made it go. But no application process, which was, like, really great. Like, this, that doesn't exist up. in the yeah. industry anymore, like, yeah. where you could just show up and we, help. We should, what can we do to bring that back? <laughs> I mean, it's not like SoFab and Motac don't exist. They're actually right. in a better space now, in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the, just the, the building is... And being tucked into the Riverwalk was right. sort of awkward for them. And the space that they have now is much more expansive. They have a, they, they have a little bit of room to grow. They've got a built-in restaurant with a bar. They've got the educational space in the back. Is there anything we can do? Like, I don't personally, think so. I mean, the make, reason that I mean, make that happen again. The straight reason why it just doesn't exist anymore is just the 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 economics just don't make it sense. It just it was a hugely like financial burden for. Motac and for SoFab as well to bring in somebody to put them up at a hotel and then like we went to dinner afterwards like it was just a very expensive venture and now with the proliferation of the cocktail industry and just it being like so much bigger like these speaker fees have just ballooned. I so. think we could focus more on our local talent which you guys obviously are doing with this radio show but there mm-hmm. are a tremendous like we have Jeff Berry living here now when yeah. he did that talk at Motac <laughs> he had to fly in from somewhere else. But, like, he's a huge resource, and Paul Gustings is a legend, and obviously the McMillans. We have a tremendous amount of talent here that could very much, if we could focus one subject, um, we could definitely execute that again. Yeah. Not to go off on too big of a tangent, I want to get back to your personal story, Lucy. Do you feel like participation in this city from our, quote-unquote, bartender community has become less active than it has been? Um. I think that kind of is hand in hand with a, there are less opportunities for it. Mm. Like not having Motac around. Uh, you do still see people that are hungry and young. Like I remember the ripe old age of 23 when I moved to New Orleans. <laughs> 23. Yeah. It's a very young child. Um, <laughs> but I was super eager and super hungry. And 
that's still out there. We just have to find some way to channel it. Yeah. I'm interested because I, I recently judged the Bombay Sapphire Most Imaginative Bartender competition. And I, I've participated in a couple other things. There, uh, Sam Perez, who was on our show last week, uh, worked with uh, a couple other uh, people to put on this really great fundraiser for the Gulf uh, Gulf Resources Restoration. Gulf Restoration Network GRN. That's I'm not good with with uh, abbreviations, but um, it was a really great event. Um, but I would think that like you know that event should have pulled like 100 150 people. We had the capacity to do that, and they got a good crowd. It was like maybe 60 people or something like that. But like you know where where is that like you know overwhelming draw? Like I we've talked about like pop ups that we've done and like special events that we've done in the past, and you know. The pop-ups I used to do with Chris Hanna, we'd get like 100 people in super easy. Like, is there too much programming there? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm between this thing where it's like there's too many opportunities where people can blow off things easier or people just are not as willing it, to It does feel like there's just – there's constantly something going on. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's always going to – if you if you miss something, there'll be the next thing coming along just later in the same week, you know, that, that it doesn't feel as rare to have those kinds of opportunities for, for, for some one-off pop-up type events, for, for brand sponsored parties, for, uh, opportunities for, for, uh, charity engagement. There's just, there's a lot of that. And there's a, there are a lot of people who moved down here around the same time that, that you did, Lucy, that sort of established themselves. And, and, but I think it was, it was, it was it wasn't as competitive then i feel like it's become a more competitive environment and less of a community environment it was really collaborative then yeah like i remember it was so so nice to walk into rhiannon specifically just like opened up her wings and was like get in here baby bird oh she really she saw the importance of working together and really everyone elevating the cocktail scene as one unit rather than trying to make every individual shine like a bright star. Mm. Um, it was really more of how can we empower this person? You like this recipe. Here you go. Like it's not, it's not as much of a, it wasn't as much of a competition. Yeah. Whereas now there are a lot of people that are more ego driven. Like how can I become a celebrity? Right. How do I singly establish myself um, and that's really not the direction that we need to be going. Right. Yeah. Did, did, yeah I don't know that it's necessarily e- ego driven. I mean, it is for some people, I'm sure. Um, but it just seems like people are just going their own way. Yeah. You know, that, that, that it, there's different groups that just sort of have splintered off and they've become so, sort of insular. And there, there's, it's less of a cohesive community. Uh, individual bars and restaurants. I mean, it's part of it. That there's just so many more places with active and well-curated cocktail programs that it doesn't feel possible to have everyone under the same big tent anymore like we used to. But it does feel like, you know, it's like, oh, I've got a, this little restaurant group with like three bars and restaurants and we just do our own thing. And they don't. there's not a lot of sort of communication with the greater community from some of the individual groups of bars and restaurants. And I do feel like we've lost a bit there, that people are sort of looking inside instead of outside. I find it weird, too. It's like people feel like uh, they have to be invited to things now, which I don't get. Like, have, have you ever done something on Facebook? It's like, hey, I'm like, you know, hanging out at City Park right now. And then you get like somebody's comments is like, thanks a lot for the invite. It's oh, like, yeah, Chris Henna. It, <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's that like, was the invite. <laughs> like, why do you think I put it, it on Facebook? Exactly. It's like, I don't know, like, uh, I, I play board games. That's a big surprise to everybody here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll post on Facebook, and I'm not going to tag 100 people, but, like, if you want to just come over to my house and play board games, like, open door, you know? Like, that's how it goes. But I, it's it's weird that I think a lot more people are kind of viewing things as being, like, like these, like, you know, segregated Clickish insular kinda, clicks. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I think that just ties into how we communicate now, like, with social media mm. being our primary platform and everyone's just rather than looking someone across the table in the eye they're texting them and looking at their phone so it's going up to a satellite and then coming all the way back down to earth and that's just sort of the sad sad reality let's talk about something happier <laughs> well the flip side of that a is that all of our communications go into outer space and back in a matter of seconds and that's just amazing yeah. but also that the the social media is or so, yeah, social media is it 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 changes the way that we communicate, but it also facilitates a lot of communication. Like I can keep in touch with people who live in different cities and in different states, and I know when they're going to be coming to town a lot of the time. And I can really it it does in a lot of ways make it easier to keep in touch and easier to maintain friendships. But it's always through that lens. So while it's a little bit it's changed a bit of the way that we do it. It's, it. it's not necessarily for the worst entirely. Like there's a lot of value to be gleaned from being able to, to maintain those connections in a way that's almost passive. You know, it makes it, it, it the, the friendships aren't necessarily as deep, but they're, they're there in a way that they might not otherwise be. Hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Anyway, so back to your personal history, Lucy. Sure. Here we are. So, yeah, uh, we, got, we got up to Loa. We I got think up to Loa. That's where we, we left off. I'll have to jump in. I think I'm going to start lying about saying that I worked at Loa at some point because all the cool <laughs> kids worked at Loa. And You're I like the did. only person who never worked I, at Loa. It's weird. And like, I don't know why I didn't ever work at Loa. I don't know why that never came up. Did you work at Victory? I feel like that's I another one of those places yeah, that never passes through. It's kind of a They're neighbors. Loa adjacent. You guys are so close. It's like fingertips touching. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I worked at Loa. It's wild. That was only for about a year. Um, while I was working there, I was also working at Iris. Um, rest in peace. That was just a really, really mm. beautiful restaurant, which is actually where Beach Bum Berry's uh, bar and restaurant is now. Um, did you just work at the Iris downtown, or did you work when they were uptown? Just downtown. Okay. So I was... Sort of, I was pulling shifts in both places at Iris and Loa, um, working with Sharon Floyd, making these really beautiful esoteric herbal syrups and tinctures, and just really sort of honing in and like really crafting. Like, I got the volume and experience on like how to be efficient behind a bar from Rhiannon, mm-hmm. and being efficient behind that bar at Loa is no. almost impossible. No, um, not, yeah, it's not built for that. But she really gave me some pro tips, like make every step count, which seems mm-hmm. so simple, but it's lost on so many. Um, so going from that and then working on a more like slow-paced, food-pairing cocktail environment, um, it was nice to hone that in. And then left Loa and then started working at Iris and Sylvain. Woohoo! Yeah, which turned into four years of being at Sylvain yeah. um, with a little bit of part-time two jacks in there as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't separate Sylvain and Lucy Weed. I really can't. Like, I was, I, yeah, I, I I was going to say that same thing. I still associate you with Sylvain. I still associate Sylvain with you to a certain extent. I don't I know was that there that's ever going to change. <laughs> <laughs> Do you live there? Is I, that a thing? Yeah, I love that bar. I miss that bar. There have been times when I've just like been having a hard day. And I've really only left there... It'll be two years in August. Oh, man. So it hasn't been that long. Um, but I just I sit 
at that first, that bar one stool, and I watch the service bartender filling water bottles, and I try to put myself into their body. <laughs> like, how, how can I go back to that time? Two years. If you worked there for four years, they say that the, al- the allowable morning time for the end of a relationship is half of the length of the relationship. Okay, so, so we're, you've we're got another few it. months before. Uh, we're it, in a very weird. healthy <laughs> place right now where I can, I still go with regularity, and still, obviously, Martha's food is incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, Do you know I went to the school with her sister back in D.C.? Oh, wow. Eliza Wiggins. That's Martha so Wiggins is the, is the chef at Sylvane, and we knew each other a little bit. We went, uh, she was a couple years younger than me. We, we were in the same high school. Yeah, hmm. and now she's James Beard-nominated chef at Sylvane. She's been there since day one. Um, obviously, Alex Harrell opened that kitchen program, but wow, Martha. So proud. Yeah, yeah. She's an amazing person. She's Super great. nice. She definitely um, took care of me once when I was really, really, really drunk on a on a Mardi Gras day. Yeah. We just popped into Sylvain. I think that's fried chicken. So Sylvain, <laughs> oh, goodness, yes, <laughs> or that burger, yeah, right. I mean, goodness. Uh, so uh, with Sylvain, I think Sylvain's a perfect example of. So you're taking a modern restaurant design. They had kind of this like you know artistic thing. Like it's with that uh, restaurant group. Um, they like taxidermy. There's that big like old American flag that's on the wall, and it's a lot of like wooden texture. It's a bit of a darker room as well. Um, I think that's like what's really important to me is having the right people in place. Like you definitely represented like a heart and a face in that place. Like if you walked in that room and you got like, you know, typical like whatever cold, casual like service that's becoming a little bit too typical in a lot of restaurants and bars, I don't think that that place would be as good as it is. But you and a couple other people really just gave that place a lot more personality. Um, and then the food's amazing. And then the drink program's really great as well. Yeah, that was a lot of just the importance of having fun at work. Like cool. I would look forward to going into every single shift. And then when it started to become not that was when I was like, okay, this relationship is over. Right. We've, we've run our course. Cool. Um, but yeah, that it gave me as much as I gave it, I mm-hmm. think. Sylvain does seem like one of those places where they just they kind of struck a real chord where it's it's sort of unpretentious but high quality, it's comfortable but still elegant and it just it seems like one of those one of those bars or restaurants I don't know how they primarily identify I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, but that's, that could just be there forever and fundamentally basically do almost exactly the same thing. They don't really need to change anything about it. It's, just, it's got a, a timelessness to it, but, mm-hmm. it's, but still very much part of the present. I, it's hard to articulate, but I really think that they struck what is a very difficult balance. And a lot of, a lot of places, you know, they open, they close. Even in that same group, a lot of places they open and close, change identities, uh, change, change management, uh, and then and they evolve over time. But Sylvain seems like one of those places that doesn't need to evolve that much. That yeah. they, they hit it pretty well right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, that it goes to having those key instrumental players like Sean McCusker, um, who's no longer with the company. That was his vision coming from like not the restaurant world at all. Mm-hmm. He just had this whole aesthetic and dream, and it really came into fruition with Sylvain. Uh, and they spent, I think, two years building that out and like arguing back and forth with the Vucare Commission. Oh goodness! Um, it was not an easy task to open that restaurant, but he really like he stuck to his guns. He knew what he wanted, um, and then bringing in uh, the partnership with Robert, of course, so you get that more local element. I was very apprehensive to work for a restaurant with some guy from New York who's never worked in restaurants before. And then I saw what he was doing and was like, holy crap, this is amazing. And then Murph Reeves was the uh, opening right. bar yeah. manager there. Oh, I forgot. They're still that. making the same him. Moscow mule as Murph employed there. Yeah. Do they still make the table tennis? 
Uh, they can. Like they should. I think it'll be with a different <laughs> beer. Yeah, that was a Darren cocktail. Yeah, yeah. With uh, that used to have the Hitachino White Ale in it, right? Yeah, I Ooh. think it went from Hitachino to Scrimshaw, and I'm not even sure what they've got for beer now. Ooh, but, so weird. Um, yeah. It's a Pim's Cup, but a Shandy. Best best Pim's Cup variation I've ever had in my life. Really I, I love that drink. It's so good. Huh. Um, cool. So what's great about Sylvain, too, which I think a lot of people will overlook, because it's become a little bit of... That is a French Quarter restaurant now. I mean, because like in in the scope of what French Quarter restaurants are, you've got restaurants that have been open for two hundred years, and then you have restaurants that have been open for like ten years, and then you have restaurants that may make it for five years for the most part. Um, I feel Sylvain's broken through to the point where like it's just in the the lexicon almost. Like when people talk about this is a French Quarter restaurant, you need to go here, 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 and Sylvain is what they think, which I'm sure was a, a bit of a struggle at the beginning. Um, because people are very much against change in the city sometimes. And like, especially in the French quarter, people have their routine a lot. Um, did you see any, any struggles with that? Um, any, any challenges or any evolution, like working there from like opening and then like later on there, I think at the inception, I started about six months after they opened, but Close enough to open. yeah, it's yeah. pretty, pretty damn near the beginning. Um, the gratitude that you would see from people living in the French Quarter to have beautiful food that wasn't necessarily jambalaya or gumbo or just the very expected New Orleans cuisine that was really all that the French Quarter had to offer at the time was incredible. It was You would see 80% French Quarter locals mm. and 20% tourists that somehow stumbled down that alley. Um, I'm sure the it's ratio right off has Jackson changed. Square. It's not like it's hiding. <laughs> yeah, but it, the entrance it is, is a little confusing. Right? That's true. That is a, okay. That alley. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I used to call it idiot proof because if you were too drunk, you would just walk right by it. Mm-hmm. So it had you this would try natural, the doors. Yeah. Like the hallway was the bouncer. Um, <laughs> it really, it still offers such a service to be serving food till like 11 or midnight on the weekends, even mm-hmm. that's not that just like a garbage piece of soggy pizza. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a public service that they do. Nice. <laughs> All right. Um, so I don't, I think like working in the French quarter, like I'm not a proponent of like, this was my worst shift. This is my best shift. I mean, I think there's definitely those outliers, like the septic tank blew up and everything was covered in poop. And you're like, okay, that was definitely my worst shift. <laughs> um, but I think working in the French quarter, you kind of get into a routine of what, you know, certain shifts are going to be like, uh, what would you say was the worst type of shift that you had and the best types of shifts you ever had? Um, like if there was a recurring shift that would happen that you particularly enjoyed or particularly were not looking forward to. I haven't, I've been lucky enough to not have to work a lot of Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I do, I sort of turn into a baby about it because oh, my no. FOMO sets in and I'm like, everyone's in costume and I want to be in costume. <laughs> um, I worked a Mardi Gras at Two Jacks that was like such a long day. I got up, I used to live next to the Backstreet Cultural Museum um, right there on Henriette DeLille. And they do breakfast with the Bone Crew on Mardi Gras Day mm. starting at, I think, seven in the morning. So I got up for breakfast with the Bone Crew and got into my Two Jacks uniform and went straight to Two Jacks for a shift starting at 8 o'clock and worked all the way till 9.30 or 10 o'clock and was just so broken by the end of it. I had so much money. I was like, yay, money is so great. But the whole time I like I couldn't even appreciate the value of the money because I felt like I'd missed out on my favorite day <laughs> of the year. Oh, yeah, it was it's like you're stuffing money in your pockets like, but this isn't a costume pockets. Yeah. Okay. I was such a baby about it. Yeah. 
So Mardi Gras at Sylvain, don't you guys, wasn't, isn't there something that happened? I've never been, but isn't it like, kind of like uh, invite only, you have a limited quantity of food or how does that work? So they do a limited menu, mm-hmm. I think just till two o'clock in the afternoon or mm-hmm. so. Um, and it's still a crazy busy shift Mm -hmm. it's a small restaurant and they just do a ton of volume anyway but i think they only run about um five or six menu items on mardi gras day for the public and then when they close the doors to the public at two they switch it over and it's more of like a staff appreciation that's evolved over the years so staff appreciation became like service industry appreciation Mm -hmm. or like friends and regulars so it the party continues in a big way but they bring out like a like a charcoal grill to the courtyard and they run the same burger, but it's on a charcoal grill <laughs> um, and make it sort of buffet style. Martha wears a dashiki. That's like part of the tradition. <laughs> Drink a lot of schlitz. Cool. Awesome. All right. So what would you say? Is there a particular shift or a holiday or an event that you really love to work there or in the French Quarter in general? Um, I like working around Halloween, but not necessarily on Halloween for the same reasons. Um, <laughs> that's kind of, it's just a fun season when people are getting really spooky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything feels super haunted. <laughs> I, um, I like your vampire <laughs> accent with it. That's pretty super haunted. I'm really looking forward to October. <laughs> yeah. um, We're so far away from Halloween. <laughs> I know, but I haven't even decided what I'm going to wear. Um, and New Year's, I think, is a fun one too, because everyone's just celebratory. Yeah. You're pouring mostly bubbles. Um, and it's never really been one that I feel like I'm missing out on. I love a firework, but mm-hmm. you get that around the year anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, give me Fourth of July over New Year's any day. But yeah. um, people are just festive and looking nice and wearing velvet and rhinestones. I hate going out for New Year's. I love working New Year's Eve. Like that is yeah. like my yeah. fa- one of my favorite shifts. To I work. would much rather work than than be out on the town for New Year's. Mm-hmm. Those sort of mandatory drinking holidays are a little bit of a disaster from the other side of the bar, but everyone's in such a good mood. Everyone's happy. It's, again, the bubbles flowing freely, sparklers. Uh, it's just... It's a time for everyone to. It's a clean slate for yeah. everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's an it's a Imaginary new it's clean a new slate. chance. I mean, yeah, it's an arbitrary cutoff point, but everyone gets one of those every once in a while. You know, yeah. it's a good. It's good. It's good for people and right. people to really make the most of it, and it feels feels nice. Cool to be a part of to facilitate that. Not necessarily just drunkenly forget <laughs> everything that happened yeah. after midnight. No, yeah. we're the hosts of the party. Exactly. Yeah, making that happen for other people feels good. Cool. Well, I think that brings us pretty much up to now-ish for the most part. Yeah, in the post-Sylvain, Lucy, right? Yeah, I mean, post-Sylvain, um, I was doing a fair amount of independent event work. Um, and then, of course, opened the Ace Hotel as their beverage manager. And then shortly thereafter, moved on. Um, now I work at the Black Penny. And I'm also the New Orleans uh, St. Germain brand specialist. Cool. Excellent. Is this your first experience with uh, brand work? Yes. Awesome. Have we had a brand ambassador or somebody who works with brands? I don't think yet? so. Awesome. Well, uh, that's that's cool. So you're so, so she's not a brand ambassador. Specialist. She's a brand. And specialist. a lot of people will just lump it all together. I think uh, in our industry, which is you know, to anybody who is is listening right now who's not in a bartender or in the bartender community at this point, um, there's a bit of a career path that some people will take where 
like uh, a lot of people will aspire at some point to go work for a distributor of liquor or for a specific brand or for a house of brands or things like that. So um, I think what Lucy's doing is very specific and very interesting. And I think a lot of people would kind of like, like I just did, just say, you're a brand ambassador, you know, which isn't quite the same thing. So Yeah, I'm, there is a whole... Um, slew of words in this industry that all have very different meanings that sound very similar. Um, so ambassador, of course, is like the over-encompassing, like uh, Camille Ralph Vidal is the international brand ambassador for St. Germain. And when you meet her, you think of everything that that bottle is embodied in a living, breathing person. Um, <laughs> she just really, she represents the brand in such a way that the two things are completely you can't extricate one from the other. Um, and there are other figures in the brand world that play into the same capacity. Um, then you get the sales rep, which is more like you should sell this, um, which people think I'm in that position as well, because it is a little bit of a fine line being a brand specialist where I really, I'd, on a small scale, I'm here to educate um, people about the brand, uh, just in the New Orleans market specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so educating the, ba- the brand, representing the brand, um, putting it into practical use, and just more local exposure. Mm. Do you want to talk any about uh, about the brand? You got this. You got this great platform. You're going to reach almost a hundred people possibly with this episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, Saint Germain. It's such a dream to work for this brand in particular because I've been a fan of it as a bartender for years. Um, it really works like butter and just enhancing everything. It's a French elderflower liqueur. Um, low ABV comes in at about 20%. And it's it gives a backbone to a cocktail that you wouldn't otherwise have if you're just using it in place of a simple syrup in a French 75 or an old-fashioned. It really... It lends fruity notes and floral notes, almost as though, gosh, I'm getting really waxing poetic about this. <laughs> Teary-eyed at the moment. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little sentimental about it, but it, it's also a beautiful aperitif on its own capacity. The Saint Germain cocktail is what I serve people a lot of the time when I'm, I'm working these events for Saint Germain. Uh, it's really just Saint Germain sparkling wine, sparkling water over ice with a lemon twist. And it's the most delicious, sessionable, <laughs> low-proof aperitif that one could ask for. Mm. I feel like St. Germain was sort of... It, it hit the market, and it was this unique, beautiful, sort of delicate, but robust, cordial, and everyone loved it, and everyone put it in every cocktail. And then there was a bit of a backlash against it. And I think the backlash was sort of unfair because people's complaint was that it was just too easy. Yeah. Like, oh, this goes with everything. It's like... You know, it's, what is it? It's like ketchup. You know, that's what they just, used to call it. Bartender yeah, ketchup. Bartender ketchup. Yeah, we're uh, we're working towards butter, though. Yeah, butter. <laughs> butter is a better a- analogy. Uh, in that, I like butter, <laughs> and I like Saint Germain. <laughs> um, but yeah, that like. How people, do you feel that, about ketchup? Got, I'm. I'd rather not say. <laughs> uh, I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that is like people were like, ah, oh, Saint Germain. Oh, you got a Saint Germain cocktail on your menu? Ugh. You're not even trying anymore. You're just putting on something that you know everyone's gonna like. It's like, yeah, 
I'm putting on something that everyone's going to like. What's wrong? It's not like every cocktail on your menu has to have St. Germain, but it's got to a point where, like, if you saw St. Germain on a cocktail at a fancy cocktail bar, you'd be like, people would, would look down their nose at it. Yeah. For no other reason other than that it was really easy to make things taste good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would agree there's definitely that backlash that's sort of unfounded. Um, it was, there was a time when it was in many, many cocktails and many, many menus. Um, and I think that's coming back a little bit as people are realizing that it's not, it's not a bad thing to have a crowd pleasing drink. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the more people that you can make happy, the the happier everyone will be. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that definitely helps out a lot. Um, I think in the industry as a whole, it's helping out a lot that we're not focusing on the individual ingredients inside of cocktails anymore. Like we can use modifiers or we could use base spirits. We could use a lot of things, but like menus aren't just that laundry list of ingredients. And it's not like, here's my cocktail. Here's the five things that go inside of there. Like now people are putting out descriptions and they're like, you know, or like, you know, like we're just, we're moving away from the fact that we're just listing what the ingredients are. Yeah. Even like the way that Canaan table has the compass, like it's a really interesting like, layout of a menu. And I love Cane and Table. I think it's a great place, but I do think their menu is a little bit too far in that direction. I think the layout is interesting because it's got the different compass points, like you said, and they sort of in different directions. They're like, this one's more robust and adventurous direction, or you want to go in a more classically inspired direction. But most of them don't list the actual ingredients. I was just looking at their menu yesterday online for uh, unrelated reason that we don't need to go into now. Um, but... It was like they were listing one or two ingredients on these cocktails that are clearly very complex and have a lot going on. And it's like, this is not enough information. Like, you're like, okay, you got a flavor profile, a bit of the history behind it, and an ingredient. It's like, that's not enough to go on. Well, Please tell me what is actually in your drink. Well, that's when you have a conversation with your yeah. bartender. I don't yeah, know. But <laughs> then why have, having the menu online, then, it's like, that's not always possible. You're, just, yeah. you're, you're yeah. not always in a position to have a deep conversation about every cocktail before you order it. No. Then the descriptions just need to be better. I'm, I'm completely against having to list everything that's inside of a cocktail because I think it hinders and it prevents people from wanting to drink cocktails. Like, the way that, I mean, we'll bring up Cure again, so I'm hoping we get our sponsor, sponsorship check from Neil Bodenheimer. But uh, when they first opened up, you know, that was the trend is to just list all the ingredients. But then that would turn into it's like, uh, what is this? What is this? What is this? Like, you'd have to ask what three or four of the ingredients on there. And I think there's a perception that's like, this is a hipster thing. This is a pretentious thing. It's like, what is this cocktail? Like, it's like I'm just going to get something simpler or something like that. So I don't know. We, I actually had to be talked by my staff into putting brief descriptors onto the cocktails at 12 Mile Limit. Because I feel like, A, if you look at a list of ingredients, I mean, yeah, you're not necessarily going to know what everything on there is. But you should be able to get an idea of what that cocktail is going to taste like if mm. it's got lime and honey and tequila, whatever whatever it is in that specific cocktail. You should be able to put that together yourself without too much trouble. Most people are reasonably intelligent. But just having a few words. But now we do all the ingredients that are in any given cocktail. Sometimes we won't list something fairly neutral, uh, you know, type of ice or the garnish we won't list. Um, but we have all the ingredients that will impart any flavor. Uh, and also two or three words like spicy whiskey sour. Or bold and earthy, you know, mm. just just the bare minimum, so people have a a rough idea of what they're getting into, and they don't need to engage with the bartender at every ch- time, so the, to know what that cocktail is going to be like. Mm. One one of our new menu cocktails is just going to say weird but good. Yeah, I'm, Mobar has that too, where they do like the strange and adventurous gin cocktail, um, and that's got Saint Germain and Chartreuse in it. Um, I think they do like a 
Yeah, a rosemary sprig. And it is like very lively, but for some people it might be like out of their comfort zone. So just calling it like strange and unusual, like it's intriguing to some and others are like, nope, that's going to be out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps. I was, I was, I'll admit I was wrong for, for resisting that for as long as I did. Hey, you guys heard it. Cole was wrong. <laughs> Hope we get a million, bound, million bound, views on this episode. Bound to happen once. <laughs> Lucy, I know that um, you mentioned earlier that when you first moved to the city, you basically partied until the sun came up for six weeks or so. Uh, got that out of your system to, a, to an extent. And that I, I know that nowadays being a, a mature adult human who is still a bartender and very active in this industry, uh, that, and, and I've kind of followed the same trajectory, that I, I used to party very, very hard, and now I don't. I mean, I still party. I'm still up late. I still go out. I still enjoy time with friends and go to events. But I'm just, I don't drink that much anymore. Uh, and I think that a lot of people, uh, I know that... Uh, Colin, who used to work at Tanique, is now up in New York, recently quit drinking. I know that uh, uh, a lot of other people that I've seen follow a similar trajectory where at a certain point they either quit drinking entirely or just cut way back and exercise some form of what is sort of in, in, the, in the recovery, with air quotes, community known as, uh, as moderation management, MM. It's sort of the, it's like AA for people who haven't quit drinking but don't want to get drunk. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how has, has, was that an organic thing for you? For me, I, I, I guess I should, there was not necessarily one precipitating event. There was there was a night where I was out. Uh, it, was a, it was an industry event, and we it was a bus crawl, and we went to a bunch of different bars. And we wound up at the Saint, and I don't remember leaving the Saint, but I do remember being woken up on the sidewalk where I had passed out, like two blocks away from my house, Ooh. by my fiance, who was convinced I was dead. Uh, and was in, even more convinced I was dead when she saw me just flat out on the sidewalk. And oh, so, goodness. yeah, I know. It was really scary for her. And immediately I was like, I need to change my life. And But it, that wasn't the first time that I felt that way. It was the last time that I felt that way. But I was wondering, a lot of people have either a precipitating event like that or they wind up in a situation uh, where they have other priorities. A lot of people don't necessarily make that choice when it's just themselves on the line. And I know that you're, you're in a long-term relationship now with, uh, that has assumed some modicum of parental responsibility as well. Has that been a, a precipitating factor or was it just an organic process where you saw other people go down that path and decided that it wasn't for you anymore? Well, yeah, you don't, you don't party as much. I mean, you still probably drink a little bit more than I do, but you're not nearly the the partier that either of us used to be. Yeah, I mean, what's that look like? I ugh, when I first moved to New Orleans, even probably through my days at Sylvain, I was drinking super heavily, and it was kind of a team building exercise um, more than anything else. So we would be drinking at work, and then we'd get out of work, and we'd I would hold a beer while I was trying to sober up from getting out of work, hmm. which is extremely embarrassing to say. I've feel like I somehow held it together. Um, drinking at work now is something that I just, I won't do unless I'm working with St. Germain. And then it's an aperitif that I feel comfortable having a drink and talking about a brand because it's not really going to make me inebriated. But for me, even though I would get drunk at work at Sylvain, it was never really about 
drinking for me has never been about getting drunk. I don't like being drunk particularly. I like experiencing like a little bit of letting down that social barrier. And I like the experience of flavor that you can get from obviously spirits and liqueurs and cocktails. But wine is like, whoa, I love wine. Um, beer is the same way. Obviously at Black Penny, we have a ton of it. Um, but I'll have a beer instead of beers and shots. Like shots are just not on my program anymore. And I don't think that there was one precipitating event. It more was just waking up one day and being like, I physically don't feel great. It's really taxing on your body to drink that much. It's not super professional to be drunk all the time. By not super professional, I mean not at all. Mm -hmm. um, it feels better to not be drinking as much. Um, and of course, I still, I'll have my days. But they're few and far between and definitely more reserved for celebratory things. Like Mardi Gras, I'm going to have more than a glass of wine for sure mm -hmm. um, because it's festive. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of one of the reasons I'm still happy. I'm happy that it never got to a point for me where I had to quit drinking entirely, where I couldn't be around it. I mean, A, because I own a bar and it's not an option. Um, but B, because now when I do drink, it's you know that glass of wine at a wedding or, or on, on New Year's Eve, or if I, you know drinking a really nice glass of cognac after a fine meal, or, or <laughs> I know I know it sounds really bougie, no, but no, my point is super it is really bougie. But A, I can spend a lot less on alcohol overall because right. I'm not just drinking constantly, and B, those times that I do drink feels like it punctuates something. You know, it 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 mm. makes. Like, even if it's just like pouring myself an ounce of whiskey at the end of a long shift where I, I feel like I earned it, you know, it, like, it feels like it means something now, whereas before it was just habitual. It was just something that I was constantly doing. I just yeah, always had a drink in my hand. Like a shot being a bartender handshake. Like, why can't yeah. we just give high fives? <laughs> or a handshake. Or, yeah. or a hug, maybe. Hugs. I, I, I'm, I like I'm about that hug long, life. awkward hugs, you know, just hold it a little bit too long. Like, <laughs> okay, let go. Let go. No, no, no. But um, yeah, I um, I am on a point now where I'm not drinking as much. I'm 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 definitely. It's not a conscious thing. It's more organic. Like we're talking about Cole. Like I'm not drinking as much. Um, my last work experience was to a point where I was drinking way too much, and uh, I have always been of the mindset that I don't like to drink at work. But in the particular job I was at, I was drinking a good deal at work. The days were really long. Uh, I was having. I, I've had sleep problems my entire life. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of felt like I was self-medicating a little bit by just, you know, trying to unwind and like, you know, put my mind at ease a little bit. And that turned into, you know, definitely, uh, you know, too many drinks at some point. And, and it was all culminated with my last day working at that job, went out to the Saint and tore it up. But, uh, I think since then it's been kind of just on a bit of a downswing. Um, I don't, I don't typically drink here at 12 mile um even though cole we've got a pretty loose policy here like yeah, a I mean, shot for every me, I, then, you if you if bartenders that want to have a drink if some if a, if a regular wants to buy a shot for somebody or if you just you know crack a beer at some point i'm not i i did that for so long mm -hmm. and it was such a big part of what it meant to be a bartender for so long for me that i don't want to judge anyone else for doing that i mm -hmm. think the social lubricating elements of it the way it sort of is it leveler between the guest and the bartender and it makes you feel sort of like you're on the same page i don't want to even though i i quit drinking at work about two years before i cut way 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 back in non-work settings as well uh but i, I don't want to judge anyone else who doesn't adopt that style because i don't think there's a right or a wrong answer there for me what i tell the staff here 
is that it's a problem if it becomes a problem. Right. And for there's there are very few times where I've had to sit someone down and be like, hey, we need you need to drink less at work. It's it's been exceptionally rare, and I feel a little blessed about that. But I also think that part of the reason is that I treat people like adults. Yeah. You know yeah. that I I'm not like people feel the need to sneak it, and they're like, I don't want to find somebody taking shots in the back. Right. <laughs> you know, they're like, no, have a drink or two, maybe a, a shot occasionally. Just mm-hmm. don't. Let it become a problem, and it won't be a problem. Yeah, it's yeah. the same policy at Black Penny, where like we can absolutely. Um, I just I choose not to. Yeah. I don't. I have no problem telling people no. Right. And peer pressure is something that really just needs to stop. Like, what do you mean you don't want a shot? Like, I'm. Like, I mean, I don't want a shot. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> feel like doing drugs right now. <laughs> that's that's what it comes down to, really. Doesn't it? Yeah, we've got a great staff right now. Everybody, like nobody, like it's like you don't have to say anything, Cole, because everybody knows. Like, this is a job. This is what we take seriously. It's funny because we just uh, we just had this new bar back who finished up training, and uh, he's worked at a couple other bars in the city as a bar back. And you know, like the first time someone was like, "Hey, you want a shot of whiskey?" He's like. Is that okay? And he's like looking for the cameras and everything. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, is, is Cole going to get mad? Like he, he kind of like the first time like after work, I was like, yeah, yeah, why don't you grab a shift beer or something like that? And he he was definitely like he was like he was like, is this a test? Are you testing me? <laughs> is this part of the training? It's like, dude, just relax and go to the other side of the bar, have a beer, let's talk about the day, you know. So, but that's the kind of bar that this is. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, we're running just pretty much uh, on time for our episodes. I usually say long, but at this point, it's become really like the norm for us here yeah, on around fifty Steve minutes. We'll be cool. So, um, uh, we like to end things here on our parting shots. We like to uh, just attack our guests with those, so they catch them unguarded. Um, so, uh, I want to start off by just saying thank you so much for coming on, Lucy. You're one of my favorite people in the city. Uh, well, we don't see each other as much as as we used to see each other, uh, but now I'm working downtown again, so I need to start swinging into Black Penny a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, even even just for a high five or an awkward hug, perhaps. Oh, yeah, just a little too long. <laughs> and I, I can't really go on air without mentioning the fact that you're the only person I know who Anthony Bourdain has called a hippie. Ooh, <laughs> shots fired. Yeah. So, so uh, I'll leave that out there. And if you people out there in uh, podcast listening land want to find out what that's all about, y'all can do your research on your own. So, <laughs> Lucy, what do you have for us for parting shots? Uh, well, I wasn't really prepared for that part. <laughs> I'm still coming off of... Just put you on the gotcha. spot. Yeah. yeah. Coming off of being called a hippie by Anthony Bourdain, still. Um, but he's not entirely wrong, so I'll give him that. That's fair. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just end with saying every, every six months or so, or maybe once a year... Uh, there's a, there's a vacancy in the staff at 12 mile limit. We we don't have a lot of turnover here, so and and we do pretty well. We're fairly consistently a money a money making shift for bartenders and a, a people can wear their own clothes here, play their own music. So it's a fairly attractive place to work. I find um, people show interest, and every time that happens, Lucy's the first person I call. Uh, <laughs> she has yet to take me up on it. She's taken a couple of shifts here here and there um, just to fill in. Back when she was in free agent mode, uh, she has yet to take me up on my repeated offers to join our staff here. But I won't stop asking, and eventually, I'm sure she will. Uh, I'm maybe, still recovering maybe not. from the mace incident. The mace. Well, yeah, we all got maced here last year during the kickball party. Uh, that was a bit of a directly maced or no. somebody, no, maced somebody got maced, and it, in an enclosed space, it just it, it, it takes over. Yeah. Fortunately, we also had a bunch of like industrial barrel fans in that day because we always know it's just uh-huh. a hot and sweaty day in the bar. So it cleared out much faster. 
faster than I would have expected. Did very, the person who get maced deserve to get maced? No, no. it was a it was a gag. Oh, was a, it was oh a, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah funny real, joke. real, real good Super joke. Super funny Dick. practical joke <laughs> that cleared the bar in fifteen. Yeah, seconds. it was one of those times that was kind of kind of like it was right around the time where it was like, all right, we're kind of ready for this party to be over, and then somebody got maced and the party was over. It was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so we should start macing the crowd when we want them to get out of the bar. I'd really rather that not become a trend. You could try it out, you know, a couple busy Saturdays, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But anyway, yeah, uh, I'm not going to stop asking. Is the sh- is the short version? Aww. Eventually, that that macing will be a distant, <laughs> funny memory, and then we can work together, Lucy. It already is a distant, funny memory. Okay. It's pretty. We're, we're laughing about it. So it's <laughs> I was talking about it last night. Like, remember the time I got maced in the park? That was wild. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening once again. I'm Steve Yamato. I want you to go and introduce yourself one more time. Our fantastic. Tell guest. us where. Tell us where they can find you on a regular basis, maybe. Uh, so I'm Lucy or Lucinda Weed, and you can find me at Black Penny from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. every Friday and Saturday. Or you can see me around town um, drinking a pair of Deefs. Oh, lovely. And again, I am T. Cole Newton. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. I don't need to say again several times in one sentence, but thank you once again for tuning in to A Round with Stephen Cole. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, y'all.